You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is America's greatest and best-loved homegrown fairy tale, so declared the Library of Congress. Published in 1900 by L. Frank Baum, the book has become an American pop culture icon, inspiring the famous 1939 movie starring Judy Garland, and in 1974, receiving a new adaptation and becoming the Broadway hit The Wiz, the Super Soul musical, a reimagining of the story within the context of African-American culture. In the second act of today's show, director Joy Powell joins me in the studio to talk about the new production of The Wiz that opened last night at the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre, and we find out why Dorothy's slippers are silver. But our first Yellow Brick Road today is going to take us to an altogether different style of music. Carolina Heredia is a composer whose music blends Western classical with her native Argentinian folk music and tango. She moved to the United States in 2009 to pursue a graduate degree in composition and came to Colombia in 2017 as one of the resident composers at the Mizzou International Composers Festival. And she liked it here so much she came back and is now the assistant professor of composition. This year, her composition, Yusin Bello appears on a new recording by the multi-award winning, internationally renowned Tesla Quartet, who, as luck would have it, are performing a concert this Sunday at the Whitmore Recital Hall. And I am delighted to welcome to the Speaking of the Arts studio, Carolina Heredia and the founding first violinist of the Tesla Quartet, Ross Snyder, along with Edwin Kaplan. Took me a second there. (laughs) Welcome to the show, everybody. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us here. Congratulations, first of all, Ross, on the birth of your new album. Joy and Desolation, which I believe was released just a couple of weeks ago. Tell us a little bit about the album and how you came upon the title. Well, the the title kind of grew out of the repertoire that we eventually ended up selecting for for the disc. But the the inspiration, the kind of the background uh, for it was that actually it all just came out of a collaboration with Alex Fitterstein, who's the clarinetist on the disc. So everything on the album is uh, clarinet quintets and we first played with Alex a few years ago at a summer festival and played the Mozart and had such a great time together we thought if there were would be an opportunity to record that we should take it and so we we eventually worked it all out to be able to make a recording together and then uh, we wanted to steer away from the traditional pairing of the Mozart and the Brahms clarinet quintets and so we looked around for other works in the genre that may be underplayed or or unknown. Um, I found John Carigliano's soliloquy, which was originally the slow movement of his clarinet concerto. Alex also kind of coincidentally had played uh, that concerto for Carigliano as a student at Juilliard a number of years ago and had performed in uh, in the hall at Lincoln Center where it had been premiered and so there was kind of an affinity for that piece and uh, also Carolina's quintet Yusin Bello after some research into some more contemporary works came up and uh, we immediately fell in love with with uh, everything about the piece and it, it's uh, 
kind of the passion in it, but also the more somber elements. And I think everything just kind of started to seem like we were comparing opposing worlds uh, with all the music. So the Mozart is very, in some ways, serene or uplifting or optimistic. And uh, pieces like Carolina's are much more dire in a way. They reflect more difficult social climates and uh, things like that. So this kind of duality, light and dark, joy and desolation, that's where that's where the title comes from. You also, the album introduced me to a British composer, which I didn't know about, Gerald Fincy, and you have pieces called Five Bagatelles, which are five different, quite short movements. How did you come across him? Well, Fincy isn't quite as well known as his contemporaries like Vaughn Williams or you know, William Walton, but he has this way of writing, uh, particularly for strings, that is very quintessentially English, if you think about that early and mid-20th century English string sound. I first came across his music as a teenager and a summer festival playing a string orchestra piece called The Romance. And uh, so I've been a fan of his music ever since that. And he doesn't have a huge output, and particularly for... Uh, string quartet there's nothing aside from kind of this arrangement of the piece that was originally just for clarinet and piano so it's just a nice compliment to the rest of the album and the music is very beautiful and uh, poignant in its own way so we, we thought it would kind of stand out with everything else as being everything is kind of unique in its own way on the album but really compliments everything else Carolina, tell us about Yusimbello that you composed. Yes, I composed this piece in 2014, and uh, it was originally part of a, a music festival, too. I composed this piece for members of the Chag Quartet, and then a clarinetist that I just collaborated forever is currently part of my uh, my ensemble, Chemia. And, uh, well, at that point, I was, I was really concerned with, like, the social situation and the political complex in Venezuela. I have very close friends that were very affected by all of this. They had like moved to the United States and were unable to go back home. So I kind of like heard like firsthand from them like all of the the situations that have only gotten worse by now. So I just wanted to as you know, as a way of like empathizing with them, I wanted to compose this piece based on that and also like a little bit like talking about my own attachment to South America there are so many things that like tied us together and we're very different cultures <laughs> some people doesn't realize how far away we're from each other and how much we are different in, in so many senses but at the same time uh, there are a lot of things that tied us together and I feel that like kind of connection with them and also I saw a lot of similarities with things that were happening in Argentina so I kind of want to reflect into that and the piece is not just about the social conflicts and all the like tragic things that happen like you know so many like murders like things were like really dark happened during that time and are still happening now but it was also you know trying to also see like all of the uh, potential that I see in, in South America, you know, the beauty of the land, uh, the beauty of the people, you know, the warmth of the people, the uh, generosity. And uh, in the, to me, but that's why that piece is like a little bit of like this fight between these two contradictions, you know, so much potential to be well, to be happy, to be rich <laughs> in many senses. Uh, and then sometimes because of 
hunger for power that sometimes our politicians have, uh, all of that is like, kind of like thrown to them. And Yusin Bello is Latin for law of war? Law of war, because yeah, at that point, like, so the confrontations at that point had just started. And uh, it, so what we were observing is that, so law of war is this kind of like uh, agreement that in any kind of like confrontation, there will always be a respect of human rights. Right, so there are certain things that are even in like instances of war, they're not supposed to happen, and uh, and in this situation, like all of those were just just like disregarded. Do you uh, know if the work has been played in Venezuela? Currently, I have no connection with Venezuela. All the Venezuelan people that I know are outside of the country, and like you know, in Argentina, it's I've never seen so many Venezuelan uh, persons. Like they just don't immigrate so far. So right now, it's, it's they're just everywhere. I see people leaving the country, and my friends up until the day of today haven't been able to go back to the country. It's just like too dangerous to get there, too dangerous to leave. Well, let's listen to that track. This is just a part, because it's a longer track. This is a part of Yusimbello performed by the Tesla Quartet with Alexander Feiterstein. Fitterstein. Fitterstein on clarinet and composed by Carolina Heredia. And that was just a part of Yusimbello, composed by Carolina Heredia and performed by the Tesla Quartet with Alexander Fitterstein. And here in the studio today, I have the composer, Carolina Heredia, and the internationally renowned Tesla Quartet. And why was Nikolai Tesla an inspiration for you? Why the name of the group? Edwin, do you want to answer that one? Um, sure. So 
Tesla, of course, um, has come into the public conscious lately as a, a very prominent figure, somebody who was able to see a lot of technological potential for society and also just humanitarian potential. And I think that it's particularly Tesla's humanitarian tendencies that influenced the naming of our group in a way. Uh, he's somebody who wanted to use his his genius and his inventions to connect people, to bring them together. He has a a sort of a quotation that we often go to to try to explain our connection with Tesla where he says that we are all held together like uh, the stars in the firmament with ties inseparable and while we can't see these ties we can feel them and that's something that um, as musicians we really latch on to because we use unseen forces to connect with our audiences and with each other and it's in that it's in that connection that we wanted to be inspired by Tesla. The Tesla Quartet was formed in 2008 when you were at the Juilliard School and almost immediately you won second place at a Chamber Music Festival and in 2016 you were the second place laureates at the Banff International String Quartet Competition. You've played at the Lincoln Centre at London's prestigious Wigmore Hall. You've toured in Brazil, China, South Korea, appeared at festivals across Europe and have numerous accolades from music magazines. What I don't have a sense of is how hard it is to make a living as a classical musician in today's Spotify climate, what are the challenges for you as a classical musician? Well, certainly, as you're alluding to, um, recordings uh, don't really bring income like like they used to. Um, not that recordings necessarily for classical musicians were a staple of the income stream, but I can't remember specific data off the top of my head, but I read something somewhere recently like, you have to have some million plays on Spotify of a single track just to get, I don't know, $10 or something like that. I mean, it's, it's it, basically, you know, recordings are more of a publicity tool for an artist now, just to be out there, to be recognized. But basically, your work is dependent on the communities that want to hear classical music or, or you know, kind of music in general. Uh, in our case, we play music as early, even earlier than Haydn, who, you know, gave birth to the string quartet, and uh, as recent as, as Carolina's music, which we're actually recording her string quartet here next week. So basically, it's just about getting as many engagements as you can. I mean, do you have other jobs, or is this a full-time world it's, for you? It's part, I suppose, you, they call the portfolio careers right now. That's kind of the catchphrase for freelance musicians and this is the majority of our time spent uh is with the quartet but you know we do play with other groups from time to time freelance in new york where we live um, but the focus is on the quartet i've recently been tracking the work we do in a more analytical way because there's a lot of, of business that we take care of ourselves it's not just rehearsing and showing up and playing a concert but it's managing bookings in relation with your agent and also maintaining a social media presence and balancing your own books and you know every all that thing and so it's not uncommon that if you combine the amount of time 
we would practice individually and rehearse as a quartet and do all the other business things. We're putting in 40 hours a week just on those things. Um, so you can consider it a full-time job, but it's not a salaried position. You know, everything is dependent on on the concert engagements uh, and fundraising for projects. So, I mean, there's lots of ways to make it a, a viable career, uh, but you have to be kind of savvy about about how what opportunities you're you're going for and taking on and um, income comes from a lot of different angles. Carolina as a composer I mean you can compose all day to your heart's content but you also need to have your work performed how hard is that as a composer the relation the dynamic between the composer and the musicians? I guess like it takes some time to develop when you're a student you, you mostly collaborate with like your your classmates or people from the university but then as you start I guess like getting later on your career then some relationships actually like uh, develop from those like initial like like class like friends and, and collaborators some of them just continue and then you graduate and everybody moves like to different places and you get somebody calling you that like you worked with like three years ago and now they are like doing these amazing things or have a festival or but then at the same time the more I'm able to put myself out there the more I'm, I'm having opportunities that people that just like finds my music and perhaps I don't have any personal connection but then they just like reach out to me for that that's great so is it a big deal to have the Tesla quartet recording music or have you got quartets lining up saying Carolina <laughs> can we can we play your music <laughs> I am so excited and like, grateful to be working with this guys and girl. <laughs> uh, no, they are just fantastic. I think actually a friend of mine uh, was the person that recommended the quintet to them because I think they were like looking, just correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the story is that uh, you were like asking for recommendations for uh, mm-hmm. contemporary music, mm-hmm. yes, quintet, mm-hmm. and then I think Matt Brown, mm-hmm. my oh, very good okay. friend from Michigan, who I think he also collaborated with you. Yeah, there. we've played some of his music. Yeah, yeah, he's a very good friend from Michigan, composer too, and I think he mentioned my, my quintet and I put it in the link in the in that like Facebook post, and that's how they fi- the, the, we started. And Richard they reached out to me. I traveled to New York and I, I saw a rehearsal and, and this like little uh, performance of the piece, and I was just like so uh, so excited to discover them because as you can see, like they are able to approach so. M- such a wide range of repertoire and and that is like not very common sometimes like because like new music as we were discussing it's like this like very specific genre i would call it and it has like a lot of uh different as, as every like you know perhaps like period of music has like the specific types of like interpretation and and, and i don't know just certain gestures and ways of playing even the same thing so let's say like Elements of music will like sound be play different in a classical style or baroque, or or new music. So this guy has just such a flexibility to approach all of those like fantastically. How did the rights work? So you've recorded. Carolina has composed the music. You're the composer. You've recorded it. So how do the rights work? And supposing. Supposing Mercedes came along and said, oh, we want to use Carolina's, uh, your recording of Carolina's composition on our global car ad. Who has the rights to the music? The rights of the master, which is the recording of the piece, we own and have licensed to Orchid Classics, who are the, uh, the label that releases the music. Now, Orchid, or we, through Orchid Classics, pay a mechanical license to 
you know, in the U.S. it's ASCAP or, or BMI. In Europe, they have another agency. And that license is, is how the organization like ASCAP receives money that is due to the composers. So composers are members of these organizations and these large organizations like ASCAP do the busy work of finding performances and collecting the royalties for performance for the composer. So, so who gets rich? Uh, <laughs> we all do. Nobody all gets time. rich. This is classical music. I don't know music. what to do with so much money. Um, so, no, I mean, the the royalty would come through Orchid Classics, I suppose, if Mercedes, if anybody's listening um, at Mercedes. <laughs> no, that, that goes through the label. But for the recording itself, I guess that would go, you know, to the label and to the quartet. I'm sure Carolina would somehow... We'll talk about well, that. Well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> so we only have a couple of minutes left, but tell us quickly about the concert that you're playing on Sunday. Edwin, do you want to go ahead and tell oh, us sure. about that? On Sunday, we're playing a lovely concert that features works both for string quartet and also Carolina's piece for clarinet quintet, Use and Bello, which is from the album. Although we're collaborating with the clarinet professor at Mizzou, so that's going to be really fun. But the other pieces on the program, aside from the clarinet quintet, are actually three more or less like newish pieces uh we're playing a piece that was written for our call for scores and i'll explain this briefly tesla quartet every year calls for on composers to submit works and we evaluate them and choose through a blind process completely anonymous a winner and so we're actually playing the winner of that michael ippolito's song lines and then we're playing um also a, a new work by an italian cellist named giovanni solima and his work is entitled Sonnets and Rondo. And then the other, the last work we'll play is um, by a Polish composer f- from the mid-20th century, a female composer named Graciana Basiewicz. And uh, she's an incredible composer who was very prolific and wrote um, about seven, seven string quartets, which is substantial. And we're playing her fourth string quartet, which is a really lovely piece uh, that we just played in California to great acclaim. And so we hope that the audience here in Missouri will enjoy it as well. And you're here until Tuesday, and then after the concert, you're doing a series of masterclasses with Mizzou students. Is that mm-hmm. right? Right. And we will also be recording my string quartet, Ausencias, which is a 30 minutes work that was my dissertation when I graduated from Michigan and was uh, premiered by Jack Quartet and now they're taking it in and like, doing the recording. Thank you so much to my first act guest today, composer Carolina Heredia, violinist and founding member of the Tesla Quartet, Ross Snyder, and the Tesla Quartet's violist, Edwin Kaplan. The Tesla Quartet will be performing at the Whitmore Recital Hall on the University of Missouri campus at 4 p.m. this coming Sunday, and generously, the tickets are all free. You can hear more music by the Tesla Quartet on their website, teslaquartet.com. Their latest album, Joy and Desolation, can be purchased on their website, and you can also listen to it on Spotify. Thank you so much, Carolina, Ross and Edwin. Thank you so much for having us. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be easing on down the Yellow Brick Road with director Joy Powell to find out more about her production of The Wiz. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. 
When L. Frank Baum, the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, was asked if his book had hidden meanings, he always said that he simply wrote them to please children. In the book's introduction, he wrote, it aspires to being a modernised fairy tale in which the wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and nightmares are left out. Its 1939 film version starring Judy Garland is listed as the most seen movie in film history and comes in at number 10 on the British Film Institute's top 50 films to see before you're 14. In the early 1970s, composer Charlie Smalls and playwright William Brown decided to retell Baum's classic children's book, but this time they would tell it in the context of African-American culture. Their new creation, The Wiz, the super soul musical, became imbued with motifs and associations that related to aspects of the black experience and culture and won its cast and crew seven Tony Awards in 1975. In 1978, The Wiz went through its own reimagining, rewritten as a musical fantasy film starring Diana Ross as Dorothy, Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow, with Nipsey Russell as the Tin Man and Ted Ross as the Lion. The movie was a loose adaptation of the stage production and despite its all-star cast, was panned by the critics and was a box office flop. But it still became a cult classic. And now the stage show has come to Mizzou under the distinctive directorial hand of Joy Powell, assistant teaching professor and director of undergraduate studies. Last night was opening night and it was fabulous. And I am so delighted to welcome back to the show Joy Powell to tell us more about the history of the show and what Powell-esque twists she has added to the Columbia production. Hello, Joy. Good morning. I need to start with a bit of a fangirl moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> the first time you were on the show was last October. You had yes. just started at Mizzou as the new assistant teaching professor of musical theatre, and you were directing the Jason Robert Brown musical Songs for a New World. And the production was so incredible, I burst into tears at the end of it. And then this past summer, <clears throat> you directed the phenomenal Ragtime the Musical, which also moved me to tears. And I thought, there is the same sprinkling of Powell magic in both of these shows. <laughs> So, thank you. At this point, I will pretty much go and see anything you direct. Oh, how kind. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure I can define the power magic, but so let me ask you, what do you think defines your productions? Um, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> That's such a light question to start with. Uh, I'm teasing. I'm so glad to be here, and uh, thank you for your kind words. I think I really believe in the things that, the stories that I get to tell, I really believe that theater can change the world. We change the world by changing our corner of it. And so I enter every process with that. I mean, there's something, you know, I get to work with incredible students and colleagues and community folks. And I just always try to, to figure out what what is powerful about a story, if it's an entertaining story. I think sometimes the word entertainment gets a bad rap. Coming to the theater and having a good time and enjoying it is just as valuable as, I think, leaving the theater with maybe a tear or moved emotionally in some way. There's always a lesson to learn. And I just, you know, I love what I do. I get to do the thing that I love at the place that I love. And I think that, I think that matters. A lot of folks don't have that privilege. So I don't take it lightly. And I really believe that all voices should have a place to resonate. And so that's one of the main things that is at the core of Mizzou Theater's heart is we're really, really making that happen in ways that haven't happened at, at Mizzou before. And that's exciting. And I think the folks involved in telling those stories, they know that. And um, so their heart and their energy are also contributing to that excitement. 
you seem to coax some very deep aspect out of the out of the students and the and the actors you uh, you direct. They they you can see they are digging as deep as they can, and there's so much heart in everything that I've seen that you have produced. So. I love it. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. So it seems like The Wiz is one of those musicals that people, if they love it, they are just super passionate about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Tell yes. me what your connection is with The Wiz. Um, I remember going to a secondhand music store. I think I was probably a eighth grader or freshman in high school. And this is back when they had, okay, young friends, cassette tapes. Don't be alarmed. You can Google it. It was a real thing. And I found this um, cassette tape. It was karaoke tracks of musicals. And Ease On Down the Road and Home were two of the songs on there. And I think I had seen The Wiz. Like, I knew what it was, but I hadn't really connected to the songs until I was listening to that compilation cassette tape. And I thought, oh, man, I really like this. And then I remember intentionally, like, watching the movie a lot because I was born in the 70s. So, you know, that was, like definitely the vibe of that was part of my growing up you know and then I just got to see Diana Ross live in concert over the summer I've always been a fan of hers and um, some of the other folks in it and I just I just loved it and you know when we were looking at what the season would this particular 2019 2020 season would look like it just came to me that first of all we had the talent that could that could play these parts and that we really wanted to continue again to open up spaces that hadn't been that not all folks had had access to before in this way in musical theater specifically and so when i um, proposed this the theater faculty were just so excited and jumped on board and said yes this makes sense and and so now we have um, 20 actors of color it's the largest cast of color for a musical in the history of the school which every time I say that I get chills, but it's that's exciting. That to me is one of the most powerful things about it. And so you're right. People either they love the whiz or or they don't know it or they're it's not their thing. But I I mean I've had people share stories like we watch it every Christmas or, you know I mean I grew up watching that and I, this is my favorite character and why and there is a deep, deep love and affection for these for this particular story. I have to say I was not a fan of the movie. I don't think I understand why it became a cult classic, and sure. But I think that the stage production is stronger. I don't. I don't I think agree. as as the critics said. I don't think Diana Ross was necessarily quite right for the part. Well, she was thirty she, when she played a fifteen-year-old, <laughs> right. so that's a little problematic. And she, you know, I do love her. She's great, but she really, really, you, you know, threw her celebrity weight around to get that. And, right. You know, Stephanie Mills, who had done it on Broadway, and you know was really forced out of the movie. I, I always wonder, like, what it would have been like, you know, had they kept the original score even right. from the stage musical to the film, what that would have been like. But So probably more people have seen the movie than have seen the play. So what are the differences? What are the, some of the key differences? There are some songs that are out of order. There are some songs that are... So they did a specific song for Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow that is not... It was just a pop song they put in the movie. In the stage play, um, which I much prefer this song, it's called I Was Born on the Day Before Yesterday, and that's the Scarecrow song. Incredibly sung and danced by Rainy Chagreen, who is one of our definite rock stars at Mizzou Theater, um, among many. And the Tin Man sings um, What Would I Do If I Could Feel, 
right after Slide Some Oil to Me in the movie, actually in the play, What Would I Do If I Could Feel is the act one finale that really convinces the Wiz to help, quote unquote, help the four friends. And then you've got Believe, the Wiz sings Believe and Glenda sings Believe, sung both beautifully by Joelle Rodriguez, who's our Wiz, and Simone Sparks, who is our Glenda. If you only had to pick one thing that was going to make you buy a ticket, Simone's costume alone is worth the price of admission. Now, there's, of course, a million other reasons. But um, that also brings up my colleague um, and friend, Mark Vital, who is our faculty um, costume designer. His work in this is just really incredible, I have to say. There are so many costume changes. I mean, the, all yes. of the dancers, they're... Yeah, the the feature dancers are yeah, yeah they they They're play several different roles, yeah. Many many different yes. roles and they are on and off stage with such fast costume changes in completely different colors. Right. I mean every dancer must have what 10 costumes? I I it's a it's near that. It's a lot. It's a lot. Well, <laughs> what you don't see in the magic of theater is that they have some underdressed, right? So they've got the second costume underneath and then the first, the costume they have on for that scene is on top and then they take that one off and they're ready for the next one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of creativity and and um, ingenuity that comes into making sure all those costume changes can happen in a timely manner. When I was watching it last night, I was imagining just these piles of clothes mounting up <laughs> just behind the curtains. Like, how are they coming back on so fast in different outfits? And where are all the outfits? Is it just kind of this chaos of of You know, <laughs> it's, it's not too bad. We have half the cast in one dressing room and half the cast in the other. So it is split up and we have a wardrobe crew of probably, I think it's like seven or eight and you know a backstage crew of of about the same amount we have three stage managers we have an orchestra of 15 you know there's there's literally a, an army of folks that make this show happen um, that no one sees visibly on the stage so it's uh, it's exciting it's an ex- visually it's really really exciting um, Mimi Hedges is my scenic design colleague and her work in this is just really really cool and you know set pieces there's things that fly in and there's there's a lot of sparkle and there's a lot of wow moments visually I this is hilarious I went and got a manicure yesterday because I hadn't been in you know a month and there's all this green paint on the sides of my nails <laughs> and my manicure was like what have you been doing I was like well we're doing the whiz and there's a lot of green <laughs> so, it's a whole emerald city to that's paint. right that's right um so it's been uh it's been a great process talk about how you portray the yellow brick road that's very clever oh. I love those outfits I do too so in the structure of the script, the Yellow Brick Road is embodied in people. And so we decided to make them dancers, uh, feature dancers. And so there's eight feature dancers in the show. The whole cast dances, but this group is featured. And so Mark Vital said, why don't we make them, why don't we put them in gold lame? And I said, well, why not? That's a great idea. And so they've got these awesome, because the show's set in the late 70s, early 80s in Chicago. And so there's this really like emerging hip hop vibe to a lot of the costumes. For those of you that are of a certain age, you'll remember the break-in movies, break-in Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo. Some people out there know what I'm talking about. So some of the Munchkin Land is actually inspired by those movies um, when breakdancing was really coming onto the scene. But the reason that we set it, where we set it, and the time period that we set it, first of all, is the style of the music, but also the Emerald City where uh, where the Wiz sort of has his uh, main homestead is on the set of Soul Train. 
And Soul Train started in Chicago and then was syndicated all over the country. And so it's got this very strong dance, disco, that 70, late 70s, early 80s vibe to it. So that Yellow Brick Road. So that that the choice of the Gold LeMay, they've got, we've got the yellow. And as they dance, there are threes on Down the Roads in the stage version. Each time Dorothy meets one of her friends, it transitions us to the next location. And so it is just one of my favorite moments. Uh, it's really, really cool. Well, let's listen to a little bit of music. This is Ease On Down the Road from the original Broadway cast recording featuring Stephanie Mills, Hinton Battle, Tiger Haynes and Ted Ross as Dorothy the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Lion setting off down the Yellow Brick Road in search of the Emerald City. Broadway cast recording featuring Stephanie Mills, Hinton Battle, Tiger Haynes and Ted Ross. My guest today in the studio is Joy Powell, the director of the new production of The Wiz, which opened at Mizzou last night. Now, I mentioned in my little teasers on Facebook about the show that uh, why does Dorothy wear silver slippers and not red ones like in the movie? Do you know the answer to that? I'm sorry, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Fortunately, I do. Well... (laughs) I figured you did. <laughs> because I was curious when I watched the movie, yeah. like, why is she wearing silver slippers? Right. Um, and apparently, the original book, which is what the movie and the stage show right. is based on, rather mm-hmm. than the 1939 movie, right. um, she had silver slippers. But when they were oh, making yeah. the movie in 1939, it was one of the first movies in Technicolor. Right. And they thought that red would, would be look better. more dramatic. Yeah. Hence yeah. the red slippers. But it isn't traditional. Silver is actually the traditional slipper that Dorothy wears. So... 
That's why. The Wiz Trivia, ladies and gentlemen, by <laughs> Diana Markson. The other one I learned, which was really yes. interesting, is why is it called Oz? And some people have, you know, referred, like, well, maybe it's to do with Australia, but it isn't. Apparently, uh, Frank Baum said that it was his filing cabinet, which went from O to Z. Oh. So he just picked it up off that. There you go. Other so practical trivia information. I'm I'm enriched. <laughs> I'm teasing. So I mentioned in my intro yes. how the Wiz purposefully includes motifs and associations for the contemporary at that time urban African American. Tell us more about the themes of the show that are included in that script. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about what is home, what does home mean, and what is what comprises home because they kind of talk about it in obviously there's the song home but there is when the four and they're actually called the four friends in the script which which we love because we also talk about what is friendship and you know if friends are the family you get to choose what does that mean because that we really see that play out in this in this story but what is home and when the four friends are asking the whiz for different things of course dorothy wants to go home and the lion and the whiz say, why would you want to do that? That's just a place where bad things happen. And, you know, and so it's interesting that there's this very, very funny script, this very exuberant and joyful uh, music. But yet there's these little pockets of, hmm, you know, so we we feel like home is, um, you know, the relatives and family are not the same. And so in this story, we see folks find home in one another. We did a, a preview performance at the Columbia Public Library, which, by the way, is just awesome. We love the library so much. And we did a Q&A, and Joel, Joel Rodriguez, who plays The Wiz, a similar question was posed. And he said, very quotable, I'm going to make sure I get it right here. He said, home is not where you live, home is where you love. And we've just sort of adopted that. You know, home is not a place, it's people. And so that's one of the main motifs and themes. I'm wildly excited to be a part of telling a story where a young woman of color is at the center. I think that's important, um, something of which we're very proud. And Dorothy's played expertly by Dacia Slater, who is just a few years older than how old the character is. And, and so that, you know, centering that that story of, of a young woman figuring out who she is on this adventure is, I think, really, really powerful. I have a big crush on the lion. Yeah. Josh Reynolds. Just fantastic. He. Uh, this is his second show ever. It's amazing. He's a born actor. He's... And an amazing singer. Yeah. He's a stitch. He is so funny. And it was interesting. Last night, one of my students at intermission, she said, my roommate's here and she keeps getting Eddie, Mur Eddie Murphy vibes. And that's interesting because as this process has gone on, Josh was like, I think I'm going to kind of bring some Eddie Murphy. Like, he's an inspiration. I'm like, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. And once you see it, you're giggling because you can... It's all over, right? And so that's been really fun because... Josh is in a band and he's a singer and he does all of this great community work and um, he and Simone are in the same band Loose Loose, Loose and um, who they had a gig after the show last night um, at Rose so we kind of got Josh through Simone she kind of helped recruit him and he's just been he's been great he's just so funny and 
again, the costume and makeup design for him is is really great. Also, I want to um, we've gotten to partner with with a new uh, collaborator. Uh, Monique Jones is our choreographer, and she just has just done an incredible job. It's very creative. It's very athletic. You're going to see a lot of dance moves from that time that warms my heart and um, I hope the hearts of others. And then also Brett Christofferson is our music director, pianist and conductor of the pit. And he worked this summer. He was in Ragtime and composed the music for Corduroy, which was the play that we did. And um, so he um, is from Missouri, but lived in New York for a long time and is now back and, and has been just an integral part of it. And then Vincent Williams is our lighting designer, who is a, a grad of our program, um, hashtag Mizzou made. So yeah, this group of designers has just been a joy to work with. Pardon the pun. There is so much dancing in the show. I wanted to ask you about Monique. Now, who is mm-hmm. she? What's her background? She has an MFA in dance from Arizona State. She was from Missouri originally and spent some time in Florida. She had her own dance studio there and is back in the Missouri area now. She has family here, so she moved back here. She actually is the event coordinator for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And she was working on, she choreographed um, Hairspray at CEC last summer, which Marcus Ruff, who is our good, good friend, um, who's the vocal coach for The Wiz, uh, worked on as well. And he knows that I'm always looking to connect with new collaborators. And he's like, Joy, you've got to meet Monique. And I was like, okay. So we met this summer and we just instantly clicked. And she has just been just a dream to work with. She's just pour so much into the actors and um, you know a lot of those folks had never really danced in a musical before and you wouldn't know it because she has just worked her magic with them. But now you say that I, I, I'm beginning to see that parallel the Marcus and Monique on Hairspray last year. Yep. And <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Now on The Wiz. Mm-hmm. Another person that I thought was outstanding. I mean they were all outstanding so mm-hmm. I don't want to single people out. But okay. Another person I have a little crush on is the doorman. Oh, <laughs> yes, the gatekeeper. The Gates. Yes. Hilarious. Andre Stewart, who's also a fantastic dancer. He's he's an, a feature dancer and the gatekeeper. Um, he is one of our majors. He is a theater major and just so funny. Great comic timing. Oh, he just is. He's great. What's great about him is he also does Shakespeare equally well. Like Andre is just he's just a wonderful talent. He's and so funny. Yeah, yeah, he's, <laughs> it's great. And and that's, I think, one of the um, strengths of our production is that literally there are no small parts. Every single bit part, every single munchkin, one through five, every single, they all bring it. And um, it's just so, I'm just so proud of all of them. Did you do any adaptation of the script or is it absolutely as it was written in as it was 1975? Written. Yep, as it was written. It, it, always, it seems a little curtailed because, again, I saw the movie and the movie is so much longer. And right. so it seems like there were things missing, but actually it's just that's how it was actually written. Yes. How was the casting? You must have had just lines of people wanting to play um, those We actually roles. had a lot of folks. I think we had about 60 people audition and we chose 20. You know, if casting is, is I after choosing what story you're going to tell, casting is the number one job. And it was it was a challenge. But I feel like exactly, I always say a little prayer that let the right people and the right parts match up. And I feel like it did in this, without a doubt. It's, uh, I, I know at the same time as, as you have The Wiz going on and Girls, which is also yes, an, uh, an all cast of all people of color is going mm-hmm. on at CEC. Yes. So everybody was, but it's, it's awesome that there were so many it's great awesome. roles. Yes. I wish they were kind of a little separated. <laughs> 
than everything I don't, happening at I once. I don't think it was intentional. I just think it, it kind of landed that way. Um, but yeah, I think it's very exciting. Very, very exciting. A lot of the theatrical stories we tell offer both a window and a mirror for audiences. And we may see ourselves reflected in characters on the stage. And we also get a glimpse into other people's lives and their motivations. What kind of impact do you hope the production has? Honestly, I hope young boys and girls of color come and they see themselves. They see they see that the world is big enough to include whatever dreams they have. It was interesting. I sat in the back with our scenic designer, Mimi Hedges, and two rows in front of us were two young boys. They were probably eight years old. And they were on the edge of their seat the entire time and asking their parents questions. And they were so engaged and in, in what was happening. And we thought, okay, that's okay, our job is done here, you know. But I also, you know, there are there are folks of, you know, kids of all ages that come, and I heard them singing along last night, and I think that it is really powerful for this story to be told on our campus. You know, we're, we are still repairing. We are still figuring out how to move forward from a lot of, of historical things that, that happened, and we need to acknowledge them, and we need to learn from them, and we need to make sure that they never happen again. And um, we need to make sure that they're, really is a place for all people to feel safe and to feel like they're heard. And I feel like The Wiz does that in this wonderful, joyful, exuberant, poignant, sweet way. It is absolutely beautiful production, and I had so much fun watching it last night and seeing the Joy Powell magic once again <laughs> on a Mizzou stage. My second act guest today has been University of Missouri Assistant Teaching Professor and Director of their new production of The Wiz, Dr. Joy Powell. You can see The Wiz at the Rheinsberger Theatre this weekend and next. Evening performances start at 7.30, plus there are 2pm matinee performances on Sunday the 3rd and the 10th of November. Tickets are $17 and can be purchased by going to theta, spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E, dot Missouri, dot E-D-U, or calling the box office on 573-882-7529, which spells 882-PLAY. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. First Friday is upon us once again, and there is a host of gallery events in the North Village Arts District. At All Street Studios, there is an opening reception for a new show called Children Be Seated, featuring artfully altered children's chairs, each with its own imagined short story and an accompanying painting by All Street director Ivy. Case and that show continues through November the 23rd. At the Sega Browdis Gallery, their November exhibit features five artists, including Columbia's own Professor of Ceramics, Bede Clark, and St. Louis painter Metra Mitchell, whose work usually starts selling before it's even on the walls. At Resonant Resident Arts, there is a new exhibit and reception for artist Zach Johnson's exhibit called Is This Thing On? The short-form improv troupe The Ponies are on stage at Talking Horse Theatre from 7 till 10pm, with the first two-hour blocks being family-friendly before they move into their new Ponies After Dark show from 9 till 10, which is for their 18-plus fan base. In the theatre world, it is opening weekend at the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre for the Super Soul musical The Wiz. Evening performances are at 730 tonight and tomorrow plus there's a 2pm matinee on Sunday tickets are $17 and the show continues next weekend at the Columbia Entertainment Company the musical Dream Girls follows the struggles and successes of a fictional black female R&B 
Group in the 60s and 70s. Showtime is 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there's a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. In Macon this weekend, it is the final chance to see the Maple Rep Theatre's production of the comedy thriller Death Trap. The show is on stage tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus there's a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets cost from $24. And at Rose Musical tonight, Indie Ozark folk band Dawson Hollow are on stage with the Bernie Sisters at 9pm for a $5 ticket. Tomorrow, Stevens College presents their inaugural Theatre for Young Audiences with a production of Miss Electricity at the Warehouse Theatre. Performances are at 2 and 7.30pm and tickets are $5. And Columbia Chorale and the Columbia Civic Orchestra will play a concert of the music of Ralph Vaughan Williams at the Missouri United Methodist Church at 7pm tomorrow evening. Sunday afternoon, the internationally acclaimed Tesla Quartet play a free 4pm concert at the Whitmore Recital Hall on the University of Missouri campus. At Murray's, the We Always Swing Jazz Series presents violinist Regina Carter and pianist Xavier Davis with two performances at 3.30 and 7. In Arrow Rock, the Texas Tennis perform two shows at the Lyceum Theatre on Sunday at 2 and 7.30. Tickets cost from $75 and I believe there are still some tickets left for both performances. The Como Comedy Club is back on stage at the Blue Note on Sunday night with two performances by Los Angeles stand-up comedian Samuel J. Comroe, whose comedy is made up of the trials and tribulations of living with Tourette syndrome. The two shows are at 6 and 8.30 p.m. and reserved balcony tickets cost $20. Monday evening, live electronic power trio Yak Attack from Portland, Oregon are on stage at Rose Music Hall at 8.30 for a $5 admission fee. And clarinetist, saxophonist and composer Ken Thompson is bringing his sextet to Mizzou for a performance with the university's concert jazz band at 7pm Monday evening. And that's in Memorial Union Stockler Lounge on campus and admission is free and open to the public. Tuesday evening, Ragtag is holding a community screening of the new movie Harriet, which will be followed by a discussion presented in partnership with the Carter Center for K-12 Black History Education, Columbia NAACP and the Minority Men's Network. And that film starts at 7. Wednesday evening, the University Concert Series presents Airlifter Brass, the brass quintet of the United States Air Force Band of Mid-America. This is a free performance at Jesse Hall and will start at 7. At Rose Musical, songwriter, bass player and singer with a four-octave range, Ray Cardwell, plays with Tennessee Moon on Tuesday evening at 8.30 and tickets are $5. Sorry, Tuesday should be next Wednesday evening. Next Thursday, there is an opening reception in Columbia College's Sydney Larson Gallery for a new exhibit that showcases work by the college's art faculty. The reception is from 3 to 4 and that's free to attend. And finally, there will be a free screening of the documentary Before the Flood in the Jesse Wrench Auditorium in Memorial Union at 4pm next Thursday, followed by a discussion with sustainability sustainability experts on how we can all make a difference you have been listening to speaking of the arts on 89.5 fm kopn columbia with me diana moxon and my good friend and sound engineer mike hagan we'll be back next week with more news views and interviews on the arts in mid-missouri until then stay arty columbia